This podcast is part of the Deluxe Edition Network. To find other great shows on the network, head over to deluxeeditionnetwork.com. That's deluxeeditionnetwork.com. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to another amazing episode of the Stephen Jarvis and Friends podcast. Today, I'm going to be talking about the sequel to Jaws being Jaws 2. But before I get to that, please go over to the Deluxe Edition Network and check out the podcast of the month for June, which is Deep Dark Secrets podcast and Barrel Aged Chicks. Let's get into it. So Jaws 2 is a 1978 American horror film directed by, not even going to try that, and co-written by Carl Gottlieb. It is the sequel to Steven Spielberg's Jaws and the second installment in the Jaws franchise. The film stars Roy Scheider as police chief Martin Brody with Lorraine Gray and Murray Hamilton reprising their respective roles as Martin's wife, Ellen Brody, and Mayor Larry Vaughn. It also stars Joseph Maskelo, Jeffrey Kramer, Colin Wilcox, Anne Dusberry, Mark Gruner, Susan French, Barry Coe, Donna Wilkes, Gary Springer, and Keith Gordon in his first feature film role. The plot concerns Chief Brody suspecting another great white shark is terrorizing the fictional seaside resort of Amity Island. Following a series of incidents and disappearances, and his suspicions are eventually proven true. Like the production of the original film, the production of Jaws 2 was troubled. The first director for the film, John D. Hancock, proved to be unsuitable for an action film and was replaced by Swarak Schneider, Schneider, who only reprised his role to end a con- contractual issue with Universal was also unhappy during production and had several heated exchanges with the director. Jaws 2 was briefly the highest grossing sequel in history until Rocky 2 was released in 1979. The film's tagline, just when you thought it was safe to go back in the water, has become one of the most famous in film history and has been parodied and paid homage several times. The film received mixed reviews and was followed by Jaws 3D in 1983 and Jaws the Revenge in 1987. Plot. While a new hotel opens on Amity Island, a 25-foot great white shark kills two scuba divers photographing the wreckage of the orca before heading into Amity waters. Their camera, which took pictures during the attack, is recovered the next day. The shark then kills a female water skier. The driver of the boat attempts self-defense by using a gas tank and flare gun, but the boat explodes, killing her and severely burning the right side of the shark's face. A killer whale carcass is found on the beach. Police Chief Martin Brody believes that a shark is responsible. Brody explains his concerns to Mayor Larry Vaughn, who expresses doubts that the town has another shark problem. Brody then finds floating debris from the destroyed speedboat and the boat's driver's burnt remains. Brody calls Matt Hooper for assistance, but he is in Antarctica on a research expedition. 
Brody prohibits his 17-year-old son Mike from boating out of concern for his safety and instead lands him a job on the beach as a show of community service. The following day, Brody watches a beach watches the beach from an observation tower and causes a panic after mistaking a school of bluefish for a shark and shooting at it. However, his fears are confirmed when photos from the diver's camera are processed and one of them shows an an up-close of the shark. When he presents it to the Amity Town Council, they refuse to believe it is a shark and vote Brody out as police chief. The next morning, Mike disobeys his father's orders by going sailing with his friends, taking his 10-year-old younger brother, Sean, with him. Marge, another teen, takes Sean with her, and they head out on six separate boats. Going past a team of divers led by instructor Tom Andrews, moments after submerging, Andrews encounters the shark. Panicking, he rushes to the surface, causing an embolism. Soon after, the shark hits the boat of teenage couple Eddie, March, and and Tina Wilcox, who have strayed from the others. Eddie falls into the water and is mauled to death. Brody and his wife, Ellen, witness Tom's evacuation by ambulance and hear that the other divers suspect something scared him. Deputy Deputy Jeff Hendricks, who has taken over as Brody's replacement, tells them that Mike went sailing with his friends, so Brody and Ellen commandeer the police boat aided by a reluctant Hendricks to rescue them. They come across Tina's boat and find her hiding in the bow. She confirms the shark's presence, and Brody hails a passing boat to take Hendrix, Ellen, and Tina to shore, where the truth is revealed while he goes searching for the kids. Meanwhile, the shark attacks the group, striking one of their boats and causing most of them to capsize or crash into each other. Mike is knocked unconscious and falls in the water. The only pair whose boat is still seaworthy retrieve Mike and leave the others to take him ashore and get help. Sean and the others remain adrift upon the wreckage of tangled boats. A Coast Guard Marine helicopter that Brody contacted arrives to tow them to shore. But the shark latches on to the chopper's pontoons capsizing it and drowning the pilot. The shark knocks Sean into the water and Marge is eaten while saving him. Brody finds Mike, who informs him of the situation before Brody sends him to safety. Brody finds the others at Cable Junction, a small island housing an electrical relay station that supplies power to Amity. The cheering and jumping that greet him attract the shark, which attacks again, causing Brody to maroon the police boat. He tries pulling them in with a winch, but instead hooks an underwater power cable. The shark hits the boat wreckage, sending most of the teenagers into the water, and they swim to the edge of Cable Junction. Jackie Peters, Mike's love interest, and Sean remain on the boats. Using an inflatable raft, Brody taps a power cable with an oar to lure the shark toward him. The shark bites the cable and is electrocuted. Brody retrieves Sean and Jackie, and they join the others on Cable Junction to await rescue. And that's pretty much the plot of the whole movie. I mean, it's it it it's really a weird one in the fact that first of all, how in the hell is another great white shark gonna magically appear? Like no one in their right mind would ever think that would work as a movie. Well, we got that. Um this movie was also pretty much shackled by um, the same production problems that the first one had. I mean, you had the first director and 
then um, the first director couldn't do the job, so then they bring in a new director, while the new director and your main star, being Roy Scheider, get into squabbles all the time and can't see the eye-to-eye. So, I mean, how are you going to make this movie work? And when they they wanted to do the sequel to Jaws after they had found out that the original one was going to be such a success, like most films do. Um, producers David Brown and Richard D. Zanuck realized that someone else would produce the film if they did not and preferred to be in charge of the pro- project themselves. In October 1975, Steven Spielberg told the San Francisco Film Festival that making a sequel to anything is just a cheap carry trick, carny trick, and that he did not even respond to the producers when they asked him to direct Jaws 2. He claimed that he planned that the planned plot was to involve the sons of Quentin Brody hunting a new shark. Brown said that Spielberg did not want to direct the sequel because he felt that he had done the definitive shark movie. The director later added that his decision was influenced by the problems the Jaws production faced. I would have done the sequel if I hadn't had such a horrible time at sea on the first film. Despite Spielberg's rejection, the studio went ahead with plans to make the sequel, leading to an arduous 18-month pre-production process. Howard Sackler, who had contributed to the first film script but chose not to be credited, was charged with writing the first draft. He originally proposed a prequel based on the sinking of the USS Indianapolis, the story relayed by Quint in the first film. Although Universal Studio Universal President Sidney Scheinberg thought Sackler's treatment for the film was intriguing, he rejected the idea. On Sackler's recommendation, theater and film director John D. Hancock was chosen to helm the picture. Hancock began filming in June 1977. However, after nearly a month of filming, Universal and MCA executives disliked the dark, subtle tone that the film was taking and wanted a more lighthearted and action-orientated story. Additionally, Hancock ran into trouble with Scheinberg, who suggested to Hancock and Tristan that his wife, actress Lorraine Gray, should go out on a boat and help to rescue the kids. When told the idea, Zanuck replied over my dead body. The next draft of the film screenplay was turned in with Gary not going out to see. Hancock says that this and his later firing of another actress who turned out to be a Universal executive's girlfriend contributed to his own dismissal from the film. Hancock began to feel the pressure of directing his first epic adventure film with only three film credits and a small-scale drama, and all small-scale dramas. The producers were unhappy with his material, and on a Saturday evening in June 1977, after a meeting with the producers and Universal executives, the director was fired. He and his wife left for Rome, and production was shut down for a few weeks. The couple had been involved in the film for 18 months. Hancock blamed his departure on the mechanical shark. Sorry. Telling a newspaper that it still could not swim or bite after a year and a half. You get a couple of shots, and the shark breaks. Echoing the first film's production, Carl Gottlieb was enlisted to further revise the script, adding humor and reducing some of the violence. He would later write write on location at Fort Walton Beach, Florida. It cost the producers more money to hire him to do the rewrite than it would have if they had hired him in the first place. 
At this point, Spielberg considered returning to direct the sequel. Over the bicentennial weekend in 1976, Spielberg had hammered out a screenplay based on Quint's Indianapolis speech. Because of his contract for Close Encounters of the Third Kind, however, Spielberg would not be able to work on the film for a further year, and the producers could not wait for him to be free. Production designer Joe Elves, who would direct Jaws 3D, and Verna Fields, who had been promoted to vice president at Universal after acclaimed editing on the first film, proposed that they co-direct. The request was declined by the Directors Guild of America, partly because they would not allow a DGA member to be replaced by someone who was not one of its members, and partly because they, in the wake of the events on the set of Outlaw Josie Wales, had instituted a ban on any cast or crew members taking over as director during a film's production. The reins were eventually handed to Swarak, best known for the film Bug, and whom Elves knew from working on the TV series Night Gallery. He recommended production by filming the complicated water skier scene, giving the screenwriters some time to complete the script. He reinstated the character of Deputy Hendricks, played by Jeffrey Kramer, who had been missing from the earlier script. Many of the teenagers were sacked, with their remaining roles developed. Three sharks were built for the film. The first was a platform shark, also referred to as the luxurious shark. Special mechanical effects supervisor Robert Maddy and Roy Arbogast used the same body mold used for the shark in the first film. The sharks from the original film had rotted behind sheds on the lower lot of Universal Studios in the intervening years. And the only pieces that were salvageable were the chromally, chromally tube frames. Maddie's design was much more complicated and ambitious than the first film. The same male body was used, but a brand new head was made by sculptor Chris Muller which made use of an all-new mouth mechanic mechanism, one which required jowls to disguise the pinching of the cheeks that had proved to be a problem with the shark in the first film. The sharks for Jaws 2 were known as Bruce 2. The sharks for the original film had been nicknamed Bruce after Steven Spielberg's lawyer, but on set they were referred to as Fidel and Harold, the latter after David Brown's Beverly Hills lawyer. The other shark props used were a fin and a full shark, both of which could be pulled by boats. Cable Junction, the island shown in the film's climax, was actually a floating barge covered with fiberglass rocks. This was created in order to enable the shark platform to be positioned to it as close as possible. A real island would have hindered this due to the upward slope of the seabed making the shark platform visible. Like the first film, footage of real sharks filmed by Australian divers Ron and Valerie Taylor was used for movement shots that could not be convincingly achieved using the mechanical sharks. Although the first film was commended for leaving the shark to the imagination until two-thirds of the way through, the director felt that they they should show it as much as possible because the dramatic first image of it coming out of the water in the first film could never be repeated. The director also believed that the reduction of the film's first film's Hitchcockian suspense was inevitable because the audience already knew that the shark looked what the shark looked like from the first film reviewers have since commented that there was no way that they were ever going to duplicate the original's effectiveness the filmmakers gave the new shark a more menacing look by scarring it in the early boat explosion like the first film shooting on water proved challenging 
Scheider said that they were always contending with tides, surf, and winds, jellyfish, sharks, water spouts, and hurricane warnings. After spending hours at anchoring the sailboats, the wind would change as they were ready to shoot, blowing the sails in the wrong direction. The saltwater's corrosive effect damaged some equipment, including the metal parts and the sharks. Susan Ford, daughter of U.S. President Gerald Ford was hired to shoot publicity photo photographs. Many of these photos appeared in Ray Lenoid's Jaws 2 log, which documented the film's production similar to the Jaws log, a book written by Carl Gottlieb covering production of the first film. Martha's Vineyard was again used as the location for the town's scenes and Emerald Coast was included on this film. Although some residents guarded their privacy, many islanders welcomed the money that the company was bringing. Shortly after the production arrived in June 1977, local newspaper The Grapevine wrote, The Jaws people are back among us, more efficient, more organized, and more moneyed. Gone are the happy-go-lucky days of the first Jaws, where the big trucks roved around the island from day to day, always highly visible with miles of cables snaking here and there over roads and lawns. Gone are the acrimonious wrangles and select persons of over noise and zoning regulations and this and that. What is still here is money, about two million of it. Many residents enjoyed being cast as extras. Some people, however, were less pleased by the film's crew film crew's presence and refused to cooperate. Only one drugstore allowed its window to be boarded up for the moody look that Hancock wanted. Universal go home t shirts began appearing on the streets in mid June nineteen seventy seven. When the director took over, the majority of the film was shot at Navari Beach in Florida. Because of the warm weather and the water's depth being appropriate for the shark platform, the company was at this location from August 1st until December 22nd, 1977. The production was a boost to the local economy because local boaters, extras, and stand-ins for the doubles were hired. Universal brought in actors, directors, producers, and their wives, camera and crew people who needed housing, food, and clothing for the movie. Services was also were needed for laundry, dry cleaning, and recreation. Navari's Holiday Inn Holid Dome was used as the film's headquarters, with the ground floor converted into production offices and some of the golf front suites remodeled for David Brown and Roy Sider. Oh, I can't say his last name. Scheider. Universal rented 100 of the hotel's 200 rooms, spending $1 million. The Holiday Inn was destroyed in the 2004 Atlantic hurricane season. Boats and parts for their maintenance were purchased from local businesses. One proprietor said they sold Universal approximately $400,000 worth of boats and equipment. On occasion, the Cable Junction Island set which was built on a large bar built on a barge broke loose from its anchorage and had to be rescued. The director was contacted one night and told that his island was drifting towards Cuba. Real hammerhead sharks circled the teen actors during the filming of one shot because the characters they were playing were meant to be in distress. The film the crew filming from a distance did not realize that the actors were generally calling for help. The interior shots of the teen hangout where they play pinball were filmed in the original location of the Hogs Breast Saloon on Okaloosa Island. This restaurant later re- relocated to Destin, Florida, as its original building was susceptible to susceptible to 
susceptible to hurricane damage. The production company had to seek dredge and fill permits from Florida's Department of Environmental Regulation to sink the revised platform that controlled the shark on the seabed, sea bottom. Principal photography ended three days before Christmas 1977 on the... Stay with us. We'll be right back. Hey, this is Ron. Do you like movies? Hey, this is Ragnar. Y'all like alcohol? Hey, guys, this is Stu. Do you like punishments? Hey, this is Goop. Do you like cinephiles? Hey, everybody, I'm Chase. You got, do you guys like alcohol poisoning? If you like all of that, then check us out at Barrel Age Flicks. We're on Apple, Spotify, and all the other platforms out there. bay near Destin, Florida. <laughs> Sorry, that I wouldn't even know how to Kachachawachki Bay. I I'm sure I probably screwed that up. The actors had to put ice cubes in their mouths to prevent their breath showing on camera. The final sequence to be filmed was the shark being electrocuted on the cable. In mid-January, the crew reconvened in Hollywood with some of the teenage actors for five weeks of post-production photography. Jaws cost $30 million to produce, over three times more than the original. David Brown says that they did not budget the film because Universal would never have given a green light to a $30 million budget in those days. The Marine Division head for Universal on location, Philip Kringy, says that it cost approximately $80,000 per day to make that movie. When Kringy asked Brown what his budget was, the producer responded, we're not wasteful, but we're spending the profit from Jaws, and it will take what it takes. Casting. Bryce Scheider reluctantly returned to reprise his, reprise his role as Martin Brody in 1977. He had quit the role of Michael Vronsky in The Deer Hunter two weeks before the start of filming because of creative dif- differences. Scheider was contracted to Universal at the time for a three-picture deal, but the studio offered to forgive his failure to fulfill his contractual obligation if he agreed to appear in Jaws 2. The actor heavily resisted the film, claiming that there was nothing new to create and that people would be watching the film to see the shark, not him. According to his biographer, Scheider was so desperate to be relieved from the role that he pleaded insanity and went crazy in the Beverly Hills Hotel. However, he was given an attractive financial package for appearing in Jaws 2. He quadrupled his base salary from the first film and negotiated points a percentage of the film's net profits. The Star newspaper reported that Scheider received $500,000 for 12 weeks work work plus $35,000 for each additional week that the schedule ran over. Despite his reluctance, Scheider pledged to do the best job that he could, wanting to make Brody believable. However, the atmosphere was tense on the set, and he often argued with the director. On one occasion, Scheider complained in front of extras that the director was wasting time with technical issues, and the extras were, while ignoring the principal actors. A meeting was called with the two, David Brown and Verna Fields, in which Scheider and the director were encouraged to sell their differences. The discussion became heated and a physical fight broke out, which Brown and Fields broke up. The rift was also articulated in writing correspondence. In a letter to the director, Scheider wrote that working with 
him is knowing he will never say he is sorry or ever admitting he overlooked something. Well, because of that shit, well, enough of that shit for me. He requested an apology from the director for not consulting him. The director reply focused upon completing the film to the best possible standard. Time and pressure are part of my reality and priorities, something I must deal with. You have been consulted and your suggestions made part of my scenes many times. Whenever they did not contradict the overconcept of the picture, if you have to be offended, I deplore it, for no offense was meant. At this point in the game, your feelings or my feelings are immaterial and irrelevant. The picture is all that matters. Sincerely, the director. Many extras were recruited from Golf Breeze High School. The students were paid $3 per hour, well above the minimum wage at the time, and reveled in being able to miss classes. Casting director Shari Rhodes requested members of the Gulf Breeze Band perform at the Amity High School Band. Seen an early scene in the film showing the opening of the Holiday in Amity Shore's Amity Scholarship Fund benefit. The GBHS band consisted of approximately 100 members, and band director John Henley chose 28 student musicians, including the band's selection known as Henley's Honkers. Universal scheduled their involvement for mid-afternoons to prevent them missing too much time in school. Universal made a contribution of $3,500 to the school and the band for their part in the film. Several other GBHS students were hired as stand-ins for doubles for the teenage actors to appear in the water scenes and to maintain and sail the boats. Richard Dreyfus, who played Matt Hooper in Jaws, said he chose not to return in Jaws 2 due to Spielberg not directing it. Um, Jaws 2 had sneak previews at 31 theaters across the United States on June 2nd, 1978, including at Lowell's State 2 in New York City before opening June 16th. Jaws 2 was the most expensive film that Universal had produced up until that point, costing the studio $30 million. Holy shnikes. And that's pretty much it. The movie was kind of... Some people liked it, some people didn't. And ultimately, that's what Jaws 2 is. I mean, Jaws 3D was more hated, and then... Jaws the Revenge, <coughs> sorry, had a little cough in my throat there, was, should have never been made. I mean, once you took Brody, Sheriff Brody, or Chief Brody out of the picture in 3D, and then in the Revenge, you have him killed off screen by a heart attack because you thought the shark was going to come back. Um, Just silly. Um. And then, of course, in the revenge, Jaws the Revenge, you have the killing of Sean, which, why didn't, yeah, it's, if I ever do a top 10 list for worst ideas for a sequel, that would probably be top five. Yeah. I mean, Halloween 2 is still up there, but, you know, Jaws is almost up there with Halloween 2, but, um. Also, I want to say that I'm now affiliated with Copper John's Beards, and they want me to tell you a little bit about them. So the Copper John's Beard Company 
says, it won't be long until your beard thanks you for buying Copper Johns. Our company's name is inspired by one of the, if not the, most popular fly fishing flies in the country. While not a complicated fly by any means, the pattern its pattern is somewhat involved and has a lot of parts. One of the reasons why the Copper Johns works so well is because of its heavily weighted underbody and bead head. The fly was originally designed by John Barr as a heavily weighted dropper pattern to drag down a smaller fly fished in tandem. It turns out that the fish love the Copper John for what it is, and they eat it as eagerly as the dropper. Your beard will love our products like fish love the Copper John. As a family-owned company, Copper John's Beard Company is committed to taking you on a journey to create your perfect beard through our quality ingredients and scents. Our specifically formulated oil and butter will make you and your beard look healthy, manly, and wise. Welcome to the Copper John's Beard family. And there's also something on... Oh, and it's 10% off for customers. And also, I will be... If you use my code, which is SG all capital SG and friends podcast 12. And that's all capitalized except for the one and two. Um, and that will give me a little, it's kind of like a code for me. And if you use the link that's in the description notes, you'll also be able to help me out a little bit. Um, and a little bit more about the Copper Johns is that what sets them apart is they are the only company to use ionic inland sea minerals. And they also have stuff for females, not just males. Um, let's see. And that'll be it. So thank you for being here and listening to my spiel about Jaws 2. Hopefully you'll enjoy the episode. Um, hopefully if Copper Johns and Beard Laws was listening, hopefully I didn't butcher their product too bad. Um, hopefully I get better. Tried to do it without a script and I'll have to come up with one using what I just said. So and it comes out cleaner and better. Um, go over to the deluxeeditionnetwork.com where you will find the podcasts for the month of June, which are Barrel-Aged Chicks, the Deep Dark Secrets podcast. And also, we have a new member joining the podcast, the Deluxe Edition Network podcast family, and that is John for the ba from The Basement Surge. I did an interview with him last yesterday, live stream interview, and it was pretty fun. And I'm sorry that I was eating at the time during the interview i was hungry i'm sorry i it was unprofessional of me and and i shouldn't have done it and i want to apologize to not only casey but also to john and to the podcast family thank you all so very much oh and one more thing before i for, before i go go check out peter anthony's the peter anthony production youtube channel for he will be doing full-time podcasting and plus, it's really great. Thank you all for joining me, and I will see you on Thursday. This podcast is part of the Deluxe Edition Network. To find other great shows on the network, head over to deluxeeditionnetwork.com. 
That's deluxeeditionnetwork.com. Welcome in to Metalhead Journeys. What is Metalhead Journeys? It's exactly how it sounds. It's a journey through the world of metal by a couple of metalheads. Are you thinking of getting into metal? Where do you begin? There's so many different subgenres. What bands are good? What albums are good? We'll provide answers to all of those questions. We'll handle all the research and do all the dirty work by listening to the good, the bad, and the ugly, so you don't have to. Classic albums, new albums, bands no one's ever heard of. Get ready as we'll applaud and criticize with the same passion. This is Metalhead Journeys.